we're back again! Oh, it's the penultimate! I think it's the penultimate. This is the episode seven. I believe the penultimate episode, because I think we're going to eight. Unless something happens and we have to extend, or I have to come back later on and apologize for all of the things I got wrong. <laughs> you know it's, it's bound to happen. But we're here with episode seven, and we're starting off a new decade. The 90s. 1990 is where we're starting. But first, I want to thank everybody for their kind comments and remarks and, and even suggestions. Yes, yes, I know the suggestions might rub me the wrong way, but they don't. Because I knew all along that this was going to be a massive project and I need all of your help to get it right. So, if you're sending suggestions, send them to rltpoffroad at gmail.com. Help me out, because I've only got one more episode to go here on Off Road. And the ticking clock means we're ready to go. Start the music. A history of Buffalo theater. This is the theme music, and whenever you hear this music, it means we're going back to the timeline. Even if we take time out from the music, what that means is we're going to listen to what people have to say, listen to their audio clips. Music means we're now returning to the timeline. Just me talking, just me reading the script of the timeline. That's what it means when the music comes back. The timeline continues with episode 7 in 1990, when Randy Kramer forms Big Apple Summer Fair, Incorporated, and they perform some children's theater locally. Later, this goes on to become simply Summer Fair, and then, as everyone knows, Musical Fair is born from that. I asked Randy what was the original inspiration for Summer Fair. What it came down to was... Once I had done the Children's Theater and I was working as, a, as an artist in residence for a not-for-profit arts organization, doing some things, and I really just needed to create work, quite honestly. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do this summer festival of the arts, the way I looked at it. And actually, that first year, we, did, we had three different elements to it. We had a, a music element, a piece called In Full Swing with Joyce Carolyn. We had a dance element, we'd pick up the crop. And then we had the theater element, musical theater element, which was nonsense, which I directed, musical directed, and just sort of did all of that. And what ended up happening was the musical theater part just took off. It just took off. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And you know what? You're going to hear this theme often from people where they say, we're just trying to create work, trying to create creativity for ourselves. So then how did the birth of Summer Fair actually come about? I didn't know when I was coming back from New York, I had no idea how to make a living. My wife, Lisa Ludwig, and I were expecting our first child. She was born in 1990. So we came back in 89. And I did some children's theater at the Lancaster Opera House, some shows that I wrote. And then that summer in, in July of 1990 was when we did Nonsense through Summer Fair at the Catherine Cornell Theater. The formal name of Summer Fair, the incorporated name was Big Apple Summer Fair, Inc. I took Summer Fair from Peter Sellers, the opera director, was doing uh, something called uh, PepsiCo Summer Fair, at Purchase, just outside of New York City in the summertime. And so Summer Fair sort of came from that. And Big Apple, just because I was coming back from New York, the Big Apple thing, that moniker never really hung around. That and Summer Fair all one and the same. Yes, because frankly, I don't remember Big Apple at all. And I'm sure it was in the paper. I'm sure it was in things that I attended at one time or another. Speaking of attending, so we know now that Summer Fair becomes Musical Fair and it ends up at Damon College. But what other venues were used by Summer Fair or Big Apple and then later Musical Fair? Because, frankly, I remember attending something, and it was, it was at Island Park in Williamsville, and I could not imagine that it could have been anybody else aside from Randy Kramer and company. So I asked Randy about it. Did you also do a show at Island Park in Williamsville? Did you do Evita at the Pavilion in Island Park? Yes, actually, you're 100% on. I'm, that was actually the beginning. That was the beginning of the summer season. We did a Little Shop of Horrors and Evita in the same year. 
Actually, Little Shop of Horrors, Danny Sachs designed the plant and the set. He was the son of Gene Sachs, who was a famous Broadway director, and B. Arthur. And B. Arthur actually came to see the show. Back then, Island Park, the only restrooms were the park restrooms, which were a disaster and really dirty. And she wasn't real happy with those restrooms because that was just, it, it was basically, the pavilion was like an old garage for all intents and purposes. It really wasn't meant to be a theater. When it would rain, we had we had plastic bags along the walls because water would come down through the roof, down the walls, and hopefully into the plastic bags. Yeah, those were the days. So whenever it rained really hard, we'd have to get in the car and drive to Island Park and empty the plastic bags. Then we went to the park store. I don't know if you caught the very end of that, but the last thing he said is, then we went to the park school. And how about that? <laughs> B. Arthur attends one of the shows and is not happy with the restroom facilities. <laughs> B. Arthur, the original golden girl, questioning the restroom facilities at our island park in Williamsville, which I've been to those restroom facilities, and it's like you're camping somewhere. Anyway... Moving right along, I continued to ask Randy about other things. How did Summer Fair become musical fair? As far as actually becoming viable, I can tell you four years into Summer Fair's existence, we were at really a crossroads. You know, Mary Kate O'Connell was our executive director from the beginning. When I came back to Buffalo, I wanted someone, number one, who was from Buffalo or had been around Buffalo Theater, who would be helpful in context. Plus, Mary Kate and I got along quite well. And so we worked together. But by 94, neither one of us had been paid for a year. And uh, it was becoming more and more difficult. And so she ended up going out on her own in 94, 95. And I ended up becoming the artistic and executive director. But the company was not by any means viable at that point. I mean, it might have looked like that on the surface, but we were like treading water like you wouldn't believe. And um it was actually in the 95 season that things started to change. We did a production out at Art Park. We did a production of A Chorus Line in 96. The budget for that single production was twice as much as our annual budget for Summer Fair. But I had done the research and I had looked at what, because A Chorus Line had played there a decade before, I looked at what it did. I saw that if we only did 60% of what it did before, we could make money and, and be successful and pay off our debt. And that's exactly what happened. Was there a magical moment when Musical Fair was created or incorporated or officially labeled as there is no more Summer Fair, now it's Musical Fair? 2001. We spent a decade as Summer Fair. So again, I'm learning things that I never expected because I had no idea that Summer Fair had existed for 10 years on its own before it became Musical Fair. And I performed with Summer Fair with Mary Kate doing a show called Twice Around the Park a little while before they changed to Musical Fair. Anyway, somehow they end up on the stage at Damon College. When we were at Island Park and then we were looking for new spaces because, you know, we were getting tired of emptying plastic bags uh, with water, <laughs> rainwater. This was before we there even was a summer fair. You know, it was during the Committee for Youth and Arts and Upstage days. And we were really looking at theater for them. But we ended up at the park school instead. But Jane Freeman took me over and showed me that space and said, the college has this space available. Would you be interested? And of course, now I'm living in New York at the time and I have dreams of grandeur, right? And I, and I looked at that space and I said, there's no way that can support any kind of musical theater performances. Yep, you were right, Randy. No way that college theater at Damon could support musical theater. So, and did you notice Jane Freeman's name was mentioned in there? And if you listened to last episode, Jane Freeman, way back in 1985 and 86, uh, was joined by Randy Kramer and Peter Sham when they formed Upstage New York. So she was the one who brought them to Damon College Theater. So how did they end up settling there? One of our board members, he did an analysis of all the theaters that we played at. And he said, look, financially, you do your best at Damon, which was you know, very antithetical to my artistic perspective, because I love doing a show down at the Pfeiffer, but the costs were just prohibitive comparatively. And it wasn't like we couldn't go back to the Pfeiffer. We did. But we had to control how many times we we're going to go down there because the house was, you know, 300 plus seats and we didn't draw 300 people there. So we've since then, you know, spent quite a bit of time concentrating mostly on the Damon space, but also, you know, reaching on to 710 and other places. But we've learned 
how to be able to do that in a way that can sustain an organization as opposed to putting it in the red. We had some really wonderful angels there. Marty Annisman was the president of Damon at the time. And, and he was supportive. And uh, his vice president of business, Frank Balzerzak, ultimately, actually, it was pre-Marty, the president before Marshall, that said to Frank, all right, if they're going to be here, you're going to be on their board and you're going to watch them for us. And Frank turned out to be, and he's still actually associated with us as a supporter and ambassador member. And he just kept an eye out for us. And then we've been very, we were very fortunate for many, many years at Damon to have other people follow who would support us, not in a financial matter at all but just look out for us and just be there. Damon's support over the years has always been an in-kind support, but that doesn't make it any less important. In-kind when it comes to rent or when it comes to electricity and utilities, even just everything from maintenance and housekeeping. And we've had really, over the years, for a long time, we had a wonderful relationship uh, with them when it came to that. So finally, to wrap up the story of Summer Fair slash Musical Fair and Randy Kramer and Lisa Ludwig and Mary Kate O'Connell and how it all began and how it evolved. Here's Randy to talk about looking back at the legacy of this, one of the most important, one of the most influential, one of the most recognized theaters and one of the most award-winning theaters in Buffalo for many, many years. I asked Randy, what was he most proud of looking back? Well, I, I think... Probably the growth of it, ultimately. I mean, where it is today, you know, and where we've grown it from literally from something that was produced on a credit card to something that has about a one, when we're not in COVID, uh, has about a $1.4 million budget. So that, and employing people, you know, we've been able, even during COVID, to keep our full-time staff on pay, on salary. We'll see, but I, we've built it up enough to where, you know, we're in the process of, of working on a brand new space, Brand new, a brand new building. But if we're able to do that, and that's about a 250 to 300 seat space, if we're able to make that jump, that would be a nice legacy I would be proud of. Because once we make that jump into that space and once we've established ourselves there, it will be time to hand off. Thank you, Randy Kramer. Always looking ahead to the future, thinking about when it might be time to hand off. We continue now with our timeline, and we are now in 1990 and 1991 when Alleyway, as was told to me by Neil Raddus, tried for one year to become an equity house. Uh, that was an experiment that came and went. One year of an equity experiment. 1991, Cadenza Productions is founded by Michael Hake. Here's Tony Chase to talk about one of the most beloved figures in the musical theater history of Buffalo, gone from us far too soon, Michael Hake. I was in the room when he died. He and I did how many installments of The Artists together and were working on a cabaret show for me at the time that he died. He was the one who, when uh, Bernadette Peters, personal pianist, was ill and could not perform with the BPO, mm -hmm. They called Michael, who did one rehearsal and played for Bernadette Peters. Just Lynn Kurzil from Otto, when you talk to her, her favorite uh, music director uh, to work with, and I saw his final performance. Um, and he would be, interestingly, my calming, in, in, you know, no matter what happened at the Arties, Michael, I've got you, I've got this. We shared a dressing room always. And uh, for me, that night is a gazillion minute details and an infinite number of opportunities for something to go wrong and for someone to get drunk and to misbehave. And Michael, we've got this, we've got this. Yeah, rock of Gibraltar. Michael Hake, beloved by theater people for many, many years. Returning to the timeline, in 1991, the Actors' Workshop of Western New York was founded by Fred Keller and Tina Rouser. Fred Keller, who you may or may not know, was a very important person in the Buffalo television and theater community. He was a terrific actor, a powerful actor, and a man who would, you know, brook no baloney from anyone. I never worked with him, I worked with his son, but I heard the stories about Fred Keller. His son was Frederick King Keller, who 
directed movies, produced movies here in Buffalo, and then went on to direct out in Hollywood. But Fred Keller and Tina Rausa founded the Actors Workshop here in Buffalo. Fred is no longer around, but here's Tina Rausa to talk about that. Fred taught acting for about 30 years or so at the alleyway. I think he uh, leased the space or rented the space to do the acting classes on Saturdays. And I taught acting in Fredonia to community people. And my friend Marion Mayshark and I, and Marion was, Marian was the first Tilly, the original Tilly in Man in the Moon Marigolds at the Cleveland Playhouse, right? So we went up and took his class. And it just snowballed from there because I found the play Educating Rita. And I thought, I want to do this. And of course, who came to mind? Fred. And he said, I'll produce it. And he did. And it was a huge success. It was like 91. I think it was 1991. It was performed at Catherine Cornell. But Fred, he was a genius. He said, we're going to run this out. Let's run it out. And we, you know, made the set, nice set. We made it movable. We took it to Fredonia. We took it towards Syracuse. We took it everywhere. And then we did it at Catherine Cornell. And Terry Duran pretty much put us on the map because he loved it. There's another mention for Terry Doran, who you may remember from, I think it was episode four a while back, Terry Doran with the Buffalo News. So then Tina and Fred moved into the space that was later occupied by Mary Kate O'Connell, we'll get to her eventually, in Cabaret in the Square in Williamsville on the corner of Maine and Harlem. I think we had rehearsal for something. We ended up having lunch at this cafe in the square, in Snyder Square. And Joe and Dorothy said, you were the owner's of Cafe in the Square. Fred knew them and they they knew, they probably followed, they liked theater a lot. And so they kind of followed what Fred did and they dug what we were doing and they said, yeah, we heard what you're doing. You know, we've got a, a storage space we're not using. How would you like to collaborate? And so we talked about it and we started, and this is one of the things I think I'm happy about. We started dinner and theater. Dinner upstairs at their, at the restaurant there and then drama down in the basement. With dessert served at intermission. We packed the house, 60 people, but we packed it almost every night. But the Actors Workshop of Western New York was not confined strictly to the space in the basement at the Cafe in the Square. They traveled around Western New York. I'm going to read a quote from Tom Laughlin if I can find it. The Actors Workshop is doing something no other theater group in Western New York has thought to do. Mount intimate, accessible, high-quality plays to tour the smaller towns and villages of the area. And there were many people who got their start with the Actors Workshop of Western New York. Here's Tina to talk a little bit about that. Arlene Clement played with us, Margot Davis, Katie White. And then we would we jobbed in Mary Kate with her jock bro. And we jobbed in Josephine Hogan with, I don't remember which show, some one woman show she did. You know, we, we jobbed in a couple of shows, which was you know, for our box office and we didn't have a show. I think that's when we're kind of falling apart by the time we brought Josephine in. You know, we got to have something, let's bring her in. We did, on the average, three shows a year, three or four, well, three shows a year. That's my rip, that's my memory. But as Tina just suggested, they were sort of falling apart at a certain point. So inevitably, I had to ask, what was the cause of the demise of the Actors Workshop of Western New York? He was brilliant, though, Peter, he was still buying books on acting and reading them constantly. I don't, I think Fred would have liked to continue, but I just could not work with him anymore. It was a thing how I handled patrons and how he handled patrons, but because I didn't really like the way he treated people. And I have, I have a completely different modus operandi. You know, I'm like more bees with honey. So I finally said, you know, keys are on the table, buddy. I can't do this. And it was basically a, here are the keys. I'm, I cannot do this anymore. And yeah, we were done. He, he remained kind, but I think he was very upset. I love that expression. Keys are on the table, buddy. I'm out of here from Tina. But looking back, Tina has some fond memories to share. Fred was doing Clarence Darrow. That was a case where I was directing it. And, and then at one point he said to me, oh, so are you directing me now? And I basically said, well, not anymore. <laughs> so anyway, it was well done. So a gentleman came and he had lost his wife and he was absolutely at loose ends, lived out in that Amherst area. You know, he basically said, I've been depressed, I was at loose ends, and I decided, he grabbed me afterwards, he goes, so I decided, I've never done this before, I've never been to the theater, it's right around the corner, so I came, and he said, this has changed my life. He said, I had no idea, so there was that. But then this is the kicker. The Bell of Amherst, so Peter, it's one of, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's one of the most beautiful plays. It's moving, it's very moving, and 
at ECC, we did a run out there. The colleges would take it because of poetry and English. And a woman, I remember she was East Indian, American East Indian. And she came up, she said, I want to talk to you. I've, I, I came last weekend and I came to see the show again this weekend. We did two weekends. And she said, I just have to tell you, I've been very, very, very depressed, very dark. And I, I was considering, then she stopped herself. And then she said, but not, not really. So I knew what she was talking about. And she said, that seeing this, I have a whole different feeling about things. I feel hopeful. So that's the power. Yes, that's the power of theater. Continuing in the timeline, 1992, the Actors' Workshop of Western New York, as I just mentioned, moved into the cafe in the square, and they stayed until 2000 when they disband, and O'Connell and Company takes over the space. We will get to O'Connell and Company when we get to 2000. 1992, Buffalo United Artists is founded by Javier Bustillos, with its first production, A, My Name is Alice, directed by Kelly Bocock. And Buffalo United Artists became a groundbreaking theater in Buffalo. Here's Javier to tell you how it all began. I've always been a lover of theater. Going to the theater has been always since I was a little kid. I love going to the theater. This was 1992. So still it was not, or 1991. Tony and I were in Minneapolis visiting his brother and family. And there was this show that was running, and I've never, I've heard about it, I've never seen it, so we went to see it. It was called A My Name is Alice, which is the musical review. When I came back, I said, my God, this show is great. Somebody should do it. Somebody should do it. As I was watching the show, I said, oh, my God, Lorraine can do this part, and I'm, I, I'm sure this can do this part. You know, so it's so just like, but you know, you know how it is. They will have their own ideas. And so, well, oh, yeah, okay, okay. It's never happened. And I said, well, you know, what's wrong with maybe I can do the play the hell with everybody because it's like nobody really was paying attention so I started thinking about it seriously like putting it together myself and that's how that's how this whole thing started I asked Kelly if she wanted to direct it she read it she loved it Teresa Quinn like we discovered music director I knew Lorraine and I knew Jean Marie we needed somebody who was a little older than them so we knew Sheila tried to look for the the black person I had seen Marion stage so I went to the ropes and and they all said yes. At the time, Kelly was working at Studio Arena. So we rehearsed in their, in their space. Toy was available in January. So we opened January 2nd. That was the Franklin Street Theater. And it was on the set of Echoes because that set never came down. The show was received wonderfully well. It was sold out all the time. Like we kept up extending it and everybody worked tremendously in that show. They put their heart and everything in that show. I mean, Gail Golden, Sheila McCarthy, Lorraine McDonald, Jim Marie Lally, and Mary Craig, Teresa Quinn, and Kelly. It was just an incredible experience. But even then, there was something unique about BUA. Javier told me that it was the only theater that was born without a theater. It was independent. Here's his explanation. And I thought, well, you know, I'm done with this. It's, I'm out of my system. But it wasn't. I just loved it. And I thought, well, this was all, no, too much fun. I really want to do it more. If you remember at the time back then, there was there were no, what we call now independent groups. It was mostly like the established companies. It was Toy, Studio, Cabanocchi, BET, the Irish, and that was it. So my idea was, we have no core company, because usually there are people who, you know, Eileen and Anne Gailey were the Cabanocchi people. Like, So that was the kind of the concept was, okay, then we're going to use people from different places. So it's going to be like United. Yeah, like United Artists, right? So, but Buffalo's, it's Buffalo, it's Buffalo Artists. At that time too, like having a company, you had to have your space. So I was one of the very first companies to, to actually start renting and start producing in other people's spaces. Then I said, well, you know, maybe you should do something else because it's so much fun. And the play I always liked was Agnes of God. So I said, okay, well, it's a very small cast. And then I was talking to Nancy, Nancy Doherty, and, and she said, I can talk to somebody at the Buffalo Sam. I mean, we can rent that space. We did that. The, the second show of UA, which was in March. It was a beautiful production, and Mary Kate was wonderful, and Mary was wonderful, and, but nobody came to see it. 
it was like a total boom. So from the first, the, for the first four months in experience, I knew both sides of the thing, but still I just loved the experience. So I just kept going. And keep going they did, but Buffalo United artists did not have the same identity that they have now. How did this come about? And I was talking to Tom Dune. I said, you know what? There's so many plays that I really would like to do, but they're all with gay themes or for gay audience. And right now we're kind of like all over the place, you know, just because we had done that first year, In My Name is Alice, Agnes of God, The Constant Wife, Johnny Ball, and Blythe Spirit. In the first eight months, that's what we, we did. So we put a list, of, I put a list together uh, that I had seen. And, and in that first year, like even at the end, we started getting more focused. That's what we're going to do because there's, it's an audience for that. It's something that you know, these people do not really see a lot. And Tom um, uh, knew this review called the 10% review, which was another um, very funny, clever yes, review, just like Alice with different songs. And that year was, Hallworth was doing some ways in being gay things, something. So we kind of like worked with them putting this together. And the thing was great again. It was like hit the market. So from then, that first November, we started just like focusing on place of interest to the, to the gay Latin community. But having a theater company, even a theater company now devoted to gay themes, was no easy task, especially when there was no theater connected to it. Here are some of the early venues that Javier talked about. So we started renting mostly the alleyway and mostly toy on Franken Street. In the toy days, they were doing kids' plays in the day, so they were free at night. And I, I said, I don't care. Whatever it's that they have, I'll do it. That and the alleyway as well. Uh, there was a play called Jeffrey by Paul Rudnick that was just done in New York. And so we got the rights and we were so happy to do it. And I directed it. I said, well, you know, why not? I keep correcting my directors and telling them what they should be doing. Just do it. And I did. And, and we just cast people who had not been cast before. And that show was the one that went like, vroom. Extended again, playing full houses, and and at the same time, the bar called the Underground, kind of like Kitty Corner. You can walk from the alleyway or to play Jeffrey to the Underground. So I became very good friends with um, with the people at the Underground because they had just started the business, and it was a good help for both of us. And as part of the conversation, one day they said that they were going to open a new bar. It's one of the main street, which was Roxy's. And then one year they said, you know, there's this whole space available upstairs because they had a leather bar, which never did very well. And we can make that into a theater and we can just give it to you. And, and they said, well, the rent, they wanted to bring the business to the bar downstairs. So it was like, so it was like minimal. It was like, okay, $500, per, which is much less than I was paying for a rental. It was a very nice gentleman's agreement. It was called BUA's Upstairs Cabaret. So now we have BUA's Upstairs Cabaret as a home for Buffalo United artists, but even that didn't last, and they continued to move around. So we stayed there for quite a while. I think it was like six or seven years, maybe six years. But that place was never coded to be a theater. So they said that we had, we had closed down or make all these renovations, and it wasn't ours, and it was going to be like a fortune, which is, you know, I never got time for fundraising. And I had my job too, you know, that was not my job. So then we had to close. We had opened a show that week, Dirty Blonde, the play about Mae West, with Guy Tomasi and um, David Jones and Doug Wyan. So I went back to my uncle Neil, and he was thinking about opening his own cabaret space in the front part of the building. So we moved Dirty Blonde to the alleyway. And then Neil was saying, well, you know, we don't know what we're going to do with the space but it's available. So take a look. And so we did. And then we stayed at the alleyway cabaret for a few years as well. And then the space in Chippewa, but Reagan now was another very good friend of mine. And he always wanted for me to have a theater. They always needed more space. So they rented the space in Chippewa. And so Ray called me again and said, listen, the space is available. It's going to be more like a meeting during the day, but you can, we can build a stage and lights and you can just have it. So we came afterwards, and again, that was that was really the best times of our life because it was we did some of our best work there. We established this huge rapport with the people across the street, and 
then we went back to the alleyway. Neil Vados has been invaluable to me. He's been one of the most helpful and supportive people. From day one, he was the most supportive person ever. I told you the Neil Radice's name comes up often during this history podcast series, and this is another time when he is helpful to BUA. But there were other obstacles to contend with. Whenever we wanted to do something hot, we had to fight for the rights. And as you will know, Studerina had always first right for refusal. Like, we did love Ballard Compassion. And I loved Terrence McNally, that, I adored that play. And they're not gonna do it because, I mean, they had to cancel Frank and Johnny. How are they gonna show seven naked men on stage? They're not gonna do it. And for, for me, that was awful. Always have to wait because then you cannot cast it. You know? And I understand if it's a, it's a huge company and there's more money, but if you're not gonna do it, what's the point of holding it? For what purpose? And I called every week. After three months of like, I couldn't get the people I really wanted, you know, got people get busy. I think that's the only, the only problem. So the biggest problem was getting the rights for hot shows when Studio Arena had the right of first refusal to any show that was available. But somehow BUA weathered it all to become one of the top producing companies in Buffalo. Here's Javier looking back. I have a lot of lovely notes from people, audience members, who said that they came out because this play, or they could finally figure out this because it's a play. I have a, quite a few of those. And I know that if I have five or six of those, there are others that, that have, have gone through the same thing. Once in a while, I keep finding another thing like that, like a, a thank you card or something. And that's really, really gratifying. When you know that you're touching people in a way that the theater is a safe place to be. And that, that makes me very, very happy. I love that. Like some people in general, that people, sometimes they do things because they think they can make it commercial. We always did it from here, from the heart. And we never really said, told people, here we are, or the gay company. No, it was the other way around. It was like the people came to us and said, yes, you are our company. And that's the one thing that I really, I never did it to become that. That just happened naturally, which is something very nice because it's, it's, it's more from the heart. And I'm sure BUA will continue producing shows from the heart as soon as we get past this pandemic. Moving on with the timeline now, we return to 1992 when Erica Wall, who you may remember from 1982 when she opened up a cabaret space, and then 1987 when she opened up another cabaret space, and now it's like every five years Erica Wall is back. And now it's 1992, and Erica Wall produces Lenny at another location, Cabaret 747 on Main Street. Also in 1992, Lisa Ludwig and Terry Kimball form Freefall Productions, performing at Theater Loft, Musical Fair, Garvey's, The Alleyway, Lancaster Opera House, sort of following the method that BUA used, a company without a home, but traveling to various different venues. And Lisa told me that the idea behind Freefall was that so she could do some shows that were more of a dramatic nature when she was doing most of her work over at Musical Fair. And once again, this is an example of someone seizing the means of production to create art. And speaking of seizing control, women become more and more active in administering theater around Western New York. In 1993, Maureen Porter and Lorraine O'Donnell formed Women in Theater, and among other pieces, they co-produce an acclaimed Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in collaboration with BET in the ICTC space in 1995. But now, 1993... Vincent O'Neill and James Ward established the Irish Classical Theatre Company in the Calumet Arts Building on Chippewa Street. This is another extremely significant event in the history of Buffalo Theatre, and here's Vincent to tell you how it was born. So it was a summer evening in 1990, and we were somewhere... Brantford Place, maybe off Elmwood Avenue. Chris had all these like elderly female fans and we were having a free dinner and drinks on her patio. It was Jim Ward, uh, Josephine, uh, Chris and myself. It was Jim actually who said, why don't we create something like more permanent? So if I remember correctly, we all put $200 in a hat 
And uh, we said, OK, let's see what happens. And Chris called Saul. You know, say better call Saul. <laughs> and um, Saul said, look, if you want to do a show, I'll, I'll give you the use of the Pfeiffer because he was chair of the department at UB at the time. So Darlene turned up and said, I'll do the marketing. I think Brian Kavanagh turned up and said, I'll help with the technicals. So the only show we could afford to do was Joyicity, which was my one-person show on James Joyce. It's a, an armchair, bench, and a cube. And that's basically it. So we, we did that at the uh, Pfeiffer, and it got a great review. So we made, I think, $1,800 or something. So we said, now we can do something more. So we did a two-person show, and then they became three-person, Faith Healer, and, and it kind of grew from there. So for three years, we were strolling players. We did the Pfeiffer. We did Damon. Basically, whenever colleges were on vacation, we'd kind of move in and do a show very quickly at Rockwell or wherever. And um, after three years, uh, we got the opportunity with the Calumet. How did that happen? What was Mark Goldman's contribution in that building on the corner of Chippewa and Franklin? It was all Mark Goldman, truthfully. He called me up and he said, Vincent, I've started this restaurant um, in the Calumet building on Chippewa Street. He said, Chippewa Street, is, it's, it's changing, it's different. And he said, I'm not doing any business on a Sunday night, but it's taken off the rest of the week and it's beginning to get gentrified. So would you do like a short comedy on a Sunday night for me? I said, have you got a theater? He said, oh yeah, yeah, there's a theater in the, in, in the restaurant. I said, okay. It wasn't called Bacchus then, it was the Calumet Arts Cafe or something. If you go to Bacchus now and you look in the corner, the opposite corner to the restrooms, there's a tiny little like four foot by three foot thing with a railing. That was our first theater. That was, we called it the Penny Stamp Theater. We, we did a play called The Galway Girl uh, by Geraldine Aaron. Uh, so we did that in that little space and it began to pack out on Sunday nights. Then we did some little thing by Shaw, and then we did a Fado farce that Fortune directed called A View with a Room. <laughs> so after this, Mark said, well, I've got this delicatessen next door. Would you be interested in starting a theater company there? And I said, absolutely. He said, I think you should see it. We went in and there were all these huge kind of like uh, heating apparatuses hanging from the ceiling and massive freezers and pillars everywhere, supporting pillars. We said, you can't do a theater here, Mark. There's no like picture frame, but there's nowhere to put that. So he said, okay, well, think about it. I said, I did. So I called up Patrick Shaughnessy. He was a, a theater designer. I said, can you come in and look at this space and see if there's anything I can do with it? So he came in and he said, there is, he said, but there's a problem. He said, if you do it traditionally, you're only going to fit 40 people in. But he said, if you do it in a circle, you don't have the problem with the pillars because you can fit 12 feet between them and put the audience around the edges. It's called theater in the round, and you can fit a hundred in, and then it's economically viable. So Jim Ward uh, High School closing down and got all these chairs for free, and we put them in two circles. And we said, this could work, except we have to learn how to act in the round and direct in the round. So we did the show, we did see marks actually. Fortune directed it, and that's how the Calumet got off the ground. But it was Mark Goldman, it really was Mark Goldman who made all that happen, you know. But Tony Chase wanted to make sure that, that something else was remembered when you consider the forming and the founding of the Irish Classical Theatre Company. Here's Tony. Josephine and Lucy Ward were also there at the beginning. And these men got the idea, Jim Ward, you know, we should have an Irish Classical Theatre Company and these two charismatic brothers who were, you know, quite a couple of hustlers, you know, that they work in the phones and filling those theaters one seat at a time. But who's working the phones like crazy? Who's doing the real grunt labor? Lucy and Josephine. And at a certain point, she spoke to Josephine. I have this from Lucy, not from Josephine. So you can ask Josephine to substantiate this or not. And she said, you know, this little fiction that these three boys founded this theater. She said, you and I were there and we know what we did. And she said, it's not important to me because I'm not an artist. I was doing it as the wife, but Josephine, you are an artist and your name should be on that theater as a founder. And so her name was added subsequently. And there will be more about the Irish Classical Theater Company and more from Tony and more from Vincent in the very near future. But now we continue in 1994 with the foundation of Hag Theatre. 
It's the city's first theater company to concentrate on plays with lesbian themes and content, and it was founded by Margaret Smith. Recently, Madeline Davis, who was sort of a co-founder, passed away. Here's Tony Chase to talk a little bit about that. The claim that Hag Theater Company is the first all lesbian, I, I don't know how to substantiate that, and I've never tried. It was the first in Buffalo. Yeah, Margaret Smith, and it was a spinoff of BUA, Javier's company, that they Javier produced last summer at Bluefish Cove. All lesbian characters, and it was Madeline. And then the women got the idea, well, you know, this had gone so well, it was such a huge hit, and there was such a hunger for it, that they got the idea, well, we could do, do our own company. And, and they did, and they uh, did a, a combination of previously produced plays and originally locally written works. And it was a, a fairly short-lived, but significant. These women kind of did it together. I don't know the exact politics of it, but Madeline certainly was there at the beginning. And Madeline was in a group that would become a national gay liberation movement. She was one of these very early people. She had astonishing self-confidence and self-esteem. But at a period of time when most gay people were ashamed. And I think that that is the character flaw (laughs) that enabled her to be a leader and a hero. And she was the first openly gay person to address a national political party convention on the issue of gay rights, saying it should be in the Democratic Party platform um, back in the 1970s. And she did write the song Stonewall Nation. We continue now with the timeline and another major theater company still producing today. 1995, Mary Kate O'Connell forms O'Connell and Company. From its first roots with Summer Fair, Mary Kate O'Connell moves off on her own. Here's how she talks about the start of O'Connell and Company. Summer Fair was, was absolutely a lovely, a lovely place to be. I think we started in late 80s, maybe. Well, it was, we did, we had the world, the area premiere of Nonsense, and that's kind of where we launched. We were at the Catherine Cornell Theater. But like many other theaters, the actual roots of O'Connell and Company began much earlier. My very first really professional company was at Commedia dell'arte on Allen and Elmwood. Now it has a wrought iron fence. That used to be the Allentown Community Center. And we were there. We performed there and in parks and everywhere. And that was 1974. She had three names, very powerful African-American woman, Joy Hardman Peskin, that's her name. My very first company was in partnership with Tom Doyle and Tom Owen and our Linda Morano and Pamela Rose Magus and myself. It was in concert. And we did probably four book shows like, like a weekend a year. We were famous for our Christmas shows, and we all had a special part of it. So it was like, it wasn't like a the chain of command in a theater. It was who's writing, who's doing costumes, who's doing everything. And then finally, O'Connell and Company take shape. When I parted ways with Summer Fair, 1995, I went to my brother Dan's office. He was a partner at Lumsden McCormick. And I went in there and I, and I told him the whole story what I did. He said, so what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. What should I do? He said, start up a theater company. I said, what? Really? I should? I, that's terrifying to me. And he said, no, I'll get you a DBA. We'll do it now. What are you going to call it? Um, I don't know. He said, okay, well, let's call it O'Connell and Company. You know, he was a brilliant guy. And I said, are you sure I should do this? And he said, did you come in here to ask my opinion? Did you come in here to help you make a decision? Now, what if you don't make a decision? You go out and get hit by a bus. You didn't make the decision. You didn't do anything. Hey, Dan, you're smarter than anyone I know. I'm going with you. Yeah, I went to my car very carefully because buses. And that's when we started with O'Connell and Company. And right from the very beginning, Mary Kate O'Connell touted her company as something a little different, a philosophy that she carried through for several seasons. I wanted and blessedly got a company that did really fine shows and had really fine uh, relationships with the actors and technicians. I always wanted it to be familial. I didn't want it to be that it was, here's your your check or look at your watch when we're giving notes at the end. I really just wanted it to be a family for however many weeks it is. And I believe we achieved that. 
And that's really the most important thing for me to make people feel that they're not alone and that they're, we're a group. You've got people you can count on. A family of friends producing theater in Amherst and in other venues. What was the niche that Mary Kate was trying to fill? I really feel strongly that O'Connell Company has filled a gap that was in Western New York theater. And that is we're dedicated to creating community with our theater. But we also focus on plays and works by women, featuring women and technicians. Whenever we can get that on board, it just enhances the women's journey. And that's our purpose. Coming into this new generation of O'Connell and Company, we've tried in the past many years to create gender parity in the arts for us. But of course, as with many other theater companies, finding a dedicated venue was a problem. We've performed at the Old Irish on Chippewa, and we performed at uh, Lancaster Opera House. And then Fred Keller's old theater, which he was just leaving and we were just coming in, he was winding down and we moved in. Actually, I was friends with the owner and he wanted me at some point to open up a, a stationary store there up on the first level. Then I saw this place down there and it stayed in my head. Then I thought when we were looking for a place, I gave him a call and we walked through it. It was a basement. It was a storage unit. And we brought in, uh, you know, many dozens of black paint and rollers. And they just let us like break down walls and keep it clean. And and really, it was really quite nice. And it was, you know, very affordable for us. Then we went for a few shows at the Riviera Theater. And then we went to... ECC North, Jack Quinn was the president of ECC at that point, and he could not have been more welcoming and generous. It really was a lovely place if if the theater had been like half the size. So when we moved on, we were in talks with the park school. We moved in there by probably moved there in July. And finally, Mary-Kate O'Connell and company end up at their new space in the Kenton Elmwood Commons. But I asked Mary-Kate to look back at those who were most helpful in getting her company off the ground. I have to say, even though we never worked together, I have been inspired and honored to have Neil Raddus as a great pal. And he's brilliant. And he has so many important things that he knows. He knows building, he knows designing, he knows lighting. And he's always helpful. You, he's, he's not someone that you call and say, Neil, can you give me a hand? I'll say, mm, don't have time. It's at when? Thursday? And of course, Neil Garvey is the one that helped me get our 501c3. And um, he was just, he was a, a dear, dear, and a great, a great assistant to our journey. You know, he really gave us a leg up. What did I tell you? Neil Raddus again. We may have to change the name of the podcast to the history of Neil Raddus. But now we continue on the timeline. 1996, the new Phoenix Theater is opened by Richard Lambert, and BET takes up residence in this new venue. It was called the new Phoenix Theater on the Park, and I asked Richard to go all the way back to his first move into Buffalo with his partner at the time, Maxim Mazumdar. Maxim and I were together for a number of years, and since he was working here a great deal and running his Stephenville Newfoundland Festival, Buffalo was sort of in the middle between Newfoundland and uh, Manhattan, where, where I was living. So got rid of the apartment, was going to move in April 1st of 1988. We bought two houses here in Allentown, and he passed on March 28th. Everything was already packed, so I continued with the move and moved up here again, knowing no one but Mr. Raddus. Mr. Raddus again. But how did they acquire that beautiful building that is now known as the New Phoenix on the park? And so around 1995, I'm like, do something. You're still, you're not young anymore, but you're not old. So I called a real estate agent and I said, here's what I'd like. I'd like to sell my house for a contingency and rent some kind of a storefront that seats maybe 60 and try some kind of conversion. And he said, well, I don't have anything like that, but why don't you meet me on Johnson Park? And gave me the address. Uh, and I, I want to show you something. So I drove around. He said, now wait here in the front. He went around the back, unlocked it, opened it, threw open the bar. The front two doors opened. I took about six steps in and said, 
I'll take it. It's slightly larger than I wanted. I wanted something more manageable, 60 seats. But I thought, well, let the adventure begin. Purchased it in 95, uh, like November 95, so in the winter of 96. The first month I was there, I would keep everything, all the utilities really low. And my big night was a Saturday night putting up the heat just a little bit, turning on all the lights and all three floors. And for me, that was a big night, the envisionment of 25 years later, what might it look like? But what had this building been before? What did it look like when he took it over? An assembly house built in 1884 by the American Federation of Teachers as an annex to the Buffalo Seminary. So it was a place where people could come. The first floor was for services and such. And the second floor, as it looked, the beautiful pictures then of tapestries and and cabinetry and overstuffed furniture on there. Margaret went attending classes there. So it had some of the hoi polloi from turn of the century that attended there for various incarnations. But it was emptied out, boarded up, no hot water, boiling spaghetti pots of water to take baths, running a lot of portable heaters on the second and the third floor. And it was cold and chilly, and it was still the soup kitchen. So there were like 13 freezers, 14 fridges all lined up on the first floor. All the cabinets, if you look, had blocks of government cheese that they used to give out as they had used to have two daily seatings for food and whatever else they would give out there. So there must have been a lot of help to turn this building into the beautiful new Phoenix Theater that exists there now. The BET, the Buffalo Ensemble Theater, or Buffalo Entertainment Theater, depending on how you remember it, moves in and becomes sort of a co-occupier of the space. Other folks who have helped were the Buffalo Ensemble Theater. At that time, Tim, our dear friend Tim, was artistic director at the time. I was thrilled to be associate artistic director of the BET. And that was a time where the Jackson building was being emptied out, where they had to find another home. I'm like, well, listen, guys, I'm going to buy this one. And if you come with me, you can be the theater in residence there, and we can continue to do theater. And it turned out that, yes, they did. John Moffat, who was chairman of the board at that point, took the project on and arranged physically for the move. What chairs are we taking? How much of this is coming in? So they seeded more gracefully my ability to open up the Phoenix. I was also had this in the back of my head too, just because I opened a theater, they ain't got to review it. They don't have to review it. And I thought by bringing the BET in, if the BET did something, it was going to be covered by the Buffalo News, two reviews by the Buffalo News at that time. And I thought if I move them in, then maybe it'll roll into anything that the Phoenix will ultimately produce. Uh, And that's exactly what happened. I was so afraid I'll open up a building and people will say, well, so what? You're not an established theater. You're not even a theater. So I thought they helped literally plant the seeds of the future of alternative respectability of some sort just by being in there. We were coexisting with two companies for a number of years. I think I waited about two and a half or three years before I started the Phoenix company itself. And for a while, we would trade off. You got the first slot, I get the second, you get the third. And that seemed to be very comfortable for a while. But just launching the papers, there were I didn't know what legally what to do. How do I incorporate? That was a big kind of mess for me. And Michelle Ninix said to me, well, listen, I can I know some of this stuff. So if you give me a slot to do a show in there, the first show, I'll walk you through the incorporation. And that's exactly what happened. All the papers, she held my hand and do this, fill out this, copies of this, take that, legalize it. And then she, the very first play that happened there was Keely and Do with Jack Hunter, Eileen Dugan, and Ann Gailey, and maybe a a fourth that I might be missing. But that was the very, very first thing that ever happened at the Phoenix theatrically. And then slowly, people start gifting things. Mark Goldman pretty quickly said, listen, this was the old Irish. All the chairs that the Irish used, I got them on the third floor at the Calumet. If you want them, they're yours. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll take them. So then hauling, taking them all down three stairs and up in there, ripping out the seats that were in the Phoenix. A lot of manual labor in making a a clean palette to put the new gifts in. But people in Buffalo have always been generous. Oh, we've got these lights, do you need them? Mark Goldman, I got 110 seats, do you want them? Yeah. So many offerings of assistance, collaborative. We're collaborating even when we don't know we're collaborating in Buffalo, I think. And then after working very hard, Richard actually forms the new Phoenix Theater. I felt comfortable doing the fiscal stuff on my own because there was no one that I was responsible for. If I had children 
or a husband or a wife at that point, I would have felt very guilty about throwing caution to the wind. But since I didn't, I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? I've never been camping. I'll sleep on the third floor. It'll be really funky and cool. I mean, that's the fiscal part. And it's always been what it started out to be, like an alternative theater, Colin Dobkowski, to the feature. And he said, it's almost like our favorite neighborhood dive bar because it's funky and it's got that funny, funky thrift shop feel about it. But it's a homey feel too. My Maxim had run a theater in Montreal called the Phoenix Theater. So this was the new Phoenix Theater on the park. So it was my nod to to him. The mission of the new Phoenix Theater on Park is to present new and classic plays that speak to our audience in a contemporary way. Now that's kind of it's like white noise for let's do theater. But at that point I wanted to do adventurous theater and puppet theater and gay theater that fit within the, that generic definition. But yeah, new bold stuff, new queer stuff. And yeah, to, just to do new things that excite you. Just to do new things that excite you. Finally, Richard takes a look back. The fact that I've been around for 25, going on 26 years now, is perhaps what I'm most proud of. They say if you own a restaurant and you've made it work for three years, you, you've done something good. So for a quarter of a century, with never having that big blast of, oh, we've got this great funding, now let me redo this, let me add this, I never was lucky enough to have that one gift. I would have been thrilled if someone said, here's a couple hundred thousand to to maintain you in tough times. I never was lucky enough to get that. Never was quite lucky enough to get that big donation. Thank you, Richard. Let's continue on the timeline. We have a few more important entries before we wrap up Episode 7 of A History of Buffalo Theater. 1997, after New York State no longer wants to run or support Art Park, the venue suffers for years through threats to close down, but local attorney and board member George G. Atia helps form the volunteer fundraising group Art Park and Company. He guides a plan to take over programming and reform finances for the venue, and the park stays open. 1998, Gail Golden founds another business theater venture, Dramatic Solutions. Also in 1998, Joe and Kelly Bocock Natale found Curtain Call Productions, and they later take up residence in the Pfeiffer Cabaret, an intimate space at the front of the Pfeiffer Theater building. 1998, Shays starts a massive stage house expansion to accommodate future touring of mega shows like Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, and Beauty and the Beast. 1999, a very big year. 1999 begins with the Irish Classical Theatre Company opening its new home at the Andrews Theatre on Main Street. Well, we had outgrown the space, honestly. We, we were doing over 90% occupancy. I there were only 100 seats, but it was obvious that we, we had to move, but we had no idea where to move to. We started looking at spaces, and we looked at... I remember Jim and I made a list of 35 different spaces. Old churches, disused attics, skating rinks, you name it, every, everywhere we looked at. And uh, we came very, very close with a church down off Johnson Park there, and they were selling it. And when the priests heard we wanted to make it a theatre, they objected to the sale because of the blasphemous nature of theatre. So what happened was the Andrew space did not exist. So I was having lunch with Larry Quinn in um, the Bayou Brew Pub, one of the many iterations of that space. We're having lunch. He said, I think I found a space for you. I said, OK. So we went around the back through the alleyway and there was a field. And at the end of the field was this facade like a movie set on Main Street, which was historically preserved, but there was nothing behind it. And it was the three facades that are there now in front of the theatre. So he said, we're going to build your theatre here. And I said, well, who owns it and where are we going to get the money? He said, I'll find out who owns it and we'll raise the money. So he introduced me to Frank McGuire. McGuire was very wealthy and a very quirky character, but I loved him. I loved him deeply. I ended up calling him uncle. So Larry and Frank were the real movers. I mean, there were lots of people involved, but they were the real movers and shakers. Larry went to the mayor and he found out who owned the space. He got the city to buy the space. And then he had us purchase it off the city, basically. So they were kind of our landlord. 
Mayor Mattiello was very involved at the time. He was really helpful and they were buddies. And we had a capital campaign. It was very aggressive. We raised 1.2 million. We bought the space and, and built a theater with that. For a theater that has become known as one of the top theaters in the city, arguably one of the top two or three, I thought it was important that we talked about who were the most helpful people along the way. Larry Quinn, Frank McGuire, a guy called John Donovan, who was president when we started the idea of getting a theater. Uh, Calvin Rand uh, took over as kind of chairman of the board. We had a president and a chairman. And of course, the Andrews were huge. Peter Andrews, Joan Andrews, and the theater was named after them because they gave the leading gift. And a guy called Ed Linder, they were really the movers and shakers. Saul Elkin, because he gave me my first job directing Waiting for Godot at the Pfeiffer. And he gave me my second job, which was teaching a class at the University of Buffalo, which is now my bread and butter. So he was hugely instrumental, I think. Fortunato, who is not only my great friend, but artistically added so much to that company. I don't never ever would reach the heights it did without him. And Josephine, who is a stalwart. And, you know, in the old days, we go to um, Kinko's and kind of put press releases together. Then we go around all the bars and pubs putting up posters. So she was there in the trenches from the very beginning. So they, they were key, key people in, in the company. And there is the mention of Josephine Hogan that Tony Chase wanted to make sure was included. Vincent takes a moment now to talk about looking back and stepping down. I had no intention of retiring. I have another good five, seven years in me of like artistic directorship, but I think the best decision I ever made in my life was handing the company over to Kate Locanti. And uh, I know I knew her from way back. She was my student at UB when she was like starting off as a freshman. And we always stayed in touch. And I always was a huge fan of her work as an actress and then after that as a director. We had a good friendship and a kind of mutual respect. And um, when I spotted Kate, I said, she's the one. I'm going to lose her. She's being offered tenure at Niagara Community College and all the rest of it. And I said, if I don't move now, I'm going to lose her. So that was the real reason. But I think also you reach a point where maybe you should step back. You know, things are changing with, you know, social media and how marketing is done. And, you know, there's far more diversity now. And there's so many changes happening that... Sometimes you always need young blood, but sometimes you need young blood kind of bringing the same level of energy and edge and excitement and risk-taking that we brought back in the early 90s, you know. Thank you, Vincent. Our story of the history of the Irish classical ends there, but of course, the Irish classical theater will continue on into the future. Continuing in 1999, Shea's Performing Arts Center completes the major renovations begun the year before that will now allow it to offer larger touring productions, and we all know where that has gone into the present. Finally, in 1999, Toy, Theater of Youth, moves into the Allendale Theater. I talked to Meg Quinn about the years-long search for a perfect permanent space for Theater of Youth. Colleen Fahey kept it I mean, the Ellendale opened because of her. Well, she was the managing director. She was the grant writer, and she handled all the business of it. And her husband was on the Common Council. He ran for mayor in Buffalo, so she was very politically savvy. So Colleen kept that. And also because we knew the Franklin Street was so small that if a school called us and they wanted to bring their whole third grade, we couldn't. We would extend shows for weeks and weeks because it was just... We knew that we could not financially develop if we didn't have more space. And so the Allendale project was really important to keep that going. It started under Jimmy Griffin. So Colleen kept that going. While I was trying to rebuild the artistic end of the company, the production end of it, she was looking to the future and how we were going to be able to sustain everything by having uh, a suitable space. The Allentown Association, so here's this very busy, active, uh, committed community organization that didn't want to just knocked down arbitrarily without considering what might it be. So they saved the building. They raised the money to put a roof on it, to you know, kind of head off some more damage that was being done. So the, the building had been closed. It was up for sale. They saved it. And then on Toys Board at that time was um, Joel Giambra. He was the councilman, the Buffalo councilman for that area, for the Allentown area. He was on Toys Board. So put two and two together, the Allentown Association trying to save the building 
Joel Giambra is on our board. We have to have a purpose for the building. He says, gee, would that be a great place for toy? So that, that was like the, the, that got things, so many random crazy things. So that's, that's how it got started. You know, it's a monster of a project, but that's how, so you figure we needed to rebuild the seven years at the Franklin Street with Ken and Chuck coming in. We reestablished toy as a theater for young audiences. And also out of that, the level of the work, the quality of the work, the recognition, people wanted to perform there. We were, were starting to make it look like, uh, you know, very responsible and a worthwhile thing to do. So by the time we moved into the Allendale, we were pretty solid on what we were about and how we were going to do things. There was one more thing I asked Meg to reflect on before I let her go. I asked her to look back at what the theater of youth has meant to the people of Buffalo. I think, uh, well, on a couple of levels, Once, one, I think a lot of actors have grown in their skill and their craft because they've performed with us. You, As an actor, you get to see in the moment what your play means because children are so demonstrable and they, they have questions and they want to know what's going on. So you can see the impact you're having. And I think that has inspired and people have learned a lot about the value of what they do. So I think for a lot of actors, that's been a good experience. I think for the you know hundreds of thousands of kids who have seen plays with us, there have been some extraordinary moments where it was important for that play to happen. You know, so I'm glad we were all part of of doing that, you know, and Toy uh, has made its mark in the field. And we, we've just influenced a lot. We, we, we did a lot of, um, or uh, several plays that I developed that uh, went into schools and talked about health and wellness issues. You know, random again, somebody asked me, can you do a play teaching kids about the, the signs of stroke so they can teach adults? And we're like, sure. So we, we did, but we found out afterwards that lives were saved. I mean, literally lives were saved because a child had said to their grandparents, well, that bad headache or that this, we have to go to the hospital and lives were saved. So I think in so many ways, it's been important. So I'm glad that we were there to do it. I always felt two things, that we had such a responsibility to do our best. And we had such an opportunity to give kids something they never expected. We should do the best we can do while we've gotten there. Don't let that opportunity get screwed up. Thank you, Meg. And that's the end of our story for Toy. And that's almost the end of this episode. But we will end very appropriately, also in 1999, with a sort of a sad note. 1999, Ray Flynn's Golden Dollar Bar serves its last drink and closes. So that's it for Episode 7 of our eight-part series, A History of Buffalo Theater. I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope you've been following along. It's been a great pleasure of mine to put this together for you. I keep learning every episode. I hope you do, too. And I hope you will be back with us again in a couple of weeks when we move on. The next section, we are not anywhere near finished. We're moving into the 2000s, the 21st century. And when we get to the 2000s, we're talking about all sorts of diversity in Buffalo theater. So join us again in a couple of weeks when we present a history of Buffalo theater right here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Music